SequelCast 2 and Friends is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, go to greenlitpodcast.com. It's sad when a mother has to speak the words that condemn her own son. But I couldn't allow them to believe that I would commit murder. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. With me is Thrasher. Well, if it uh, doesn't set, it's not Jello, and uh, brother, this ain't Jello. And Alex. If you get a feeling of deja vu, it's okay. A lot of people felt the same in the late 90s. Yep, uh, we were talking about Gus Van Sant's uh, much loved, re- oh maybe not much loved, but his his remake of Psycho, um, from '98. You know, this has a really good cast of uh, some people before they were got more famous, like Viggo Mortensen. Uh, Julianne Moore was kind of earlier in her career. Vince Vaughn was certainly pretty young and uh, skinnier at this point, and so forth. Uh, Anne Hesh, uh, William H Macy, all Flea stuff. from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yep. Yeah. Right, and it has the guy that played uh, Shao Kahn in Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Hey, um, is the cop, go. and he's oh, wow. he was also the father on. Oh, I can't even think of it now. What was that Showtime show with the guy that kept killing people? Dexter. And he also investigated Dexter. Yeah, he was the father yeah. on Dexter. So that was a cool show. Um, but yeah, Psycho '98. Um, th- this is a strange project. You know, Gus Van Sant had become kind of a darling. In the indie low-budget film world, for of course the uh, Matt Damon, Ben Affleck uh, written film *Goodwill Hunting*, and um, he could kind of do whatever he wanted, so he decided to do this. And I mean, it, it did. To be fair, you know, this did make uh, some money, but the budget was sixty million, which seems sort of high. But you had movie stars and stuff in this to a point, sort of. And uh, as the terrible poster says, "Check in, relax, take a shower." It's almost like a human centipede kind of thing going on with the body pressed against the glass. Although this was way before human centipede, so perhaps they were doing a 98 Psycho uh, reference. And this got, you know, slammed by critics, I think rightfully so, because it's trying to do nearly shot for shot of the original, but it's in color. Um, Danny Elfman and Steve Bartek uh, reworked the Bernard Herman Herman, uh, music. Uh, with, you know, new recordings and so forth, uh, recorded in stereo, not mono like the original. And um, Joseph Stefano came back to polish his original script, although he mainly updated things like people using a Walkman or the amount of money is 400000 not 40000 Yeah, this, this, came, this came out in 1998, and it very much exists in 1998 with references to the technology and the slang. Like, the whole thing I opened with Jello. In the original film, the line is, if it doesn't set, it's not Aspic. Aspic being the leading gelatin-based dessert <laughs> at the time, it's gone now. Uh, so the so the, the catchphrase doesn't make any sense. So that's why it's jello. Well, exactly. in fact, um, you know, that was considered real, like, rich people food, right? 
let's have a tomato aspic. Let's have a, you yeah. know, it was sort of unusual not to see a gelatin uh, in some form or another in, in those kind of 1950s and, and older. Uh, oh, the history books. of gelatin desserts is fascinating and well worth looking up, but also mostly yeah, outside of the scope of this podcast. Um, yeah, We'd have to hoof it to discuss that, uh, Alex. Oh, I see what you did there. Uh, the big question is that everyone's like, you know, Gus Van Sant, why? Why remake Psycho? Why tread on the hollow ground of, of Alfred Hitchcock? And I have some insight as to why this movie okay. came to be. And that was, um, you know, obviously after Goodwill Hunting, Gus Van Sant's much more endeared to, you know, uh, studios since he had come from being an indie darling with a drugstore cowboy in my own private Idaho, blah, blah, blah. And he was going through all the scripts that the studios had property for, and a lot of them were remakes. And then it was kind of like, well, 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 let's remake something good, you know, instead of, you know, some stupid movie no one cares about. Um, so what's good? Well, Psycho is the, you know, is the best. And so part of it was also, hey, what, what would happen, you know, you know, kids these days don't appreciate Hitchcock. They're not going to watch black and white movies. So you can watch the, the, the film your, your parents like, but with 90s people and in color. Isn't that cool? everybody and also i think the thing too is that um obviously gus van zandt he's, he's got a lot of reference for the original and a lot of people misinterpret it as like oh he's disrespecting hitchcock and he's rivaling hitchcock and it's like just because he's remaking his film it's not like you know van zandt v hitchcock uh dawn of psycho it's more just i want to see what happens if you take the taking an original film do a almost shot for shot remake with different cast do you get the same movie and it's an artistic experiment above all else i feel like it's just one of the only occasions where a major studio funded basically an artistic experiment <laughs> and well, what you I, get is this oddity well i think i think gus van zandt clearly has a lot of love for the original and it, and it shows on on every frame i don't get any sense that he's trying to compete with or unseat hitchcock it, it's sort of it's sort of like both a loving tribute and a filmmaking experiment but you know what this really reminded me of this feels like this feels like somebody took a great play and just did a revival of that great play Right, like, exactly. Like in all in all honesty, I feel like like every every year someone should do this. Every year someone should try to do some filmmaker should try to do a shot for shot remake of Psycho set in the modern day with an all new cast and just see how it works. Yeah, I, it's, I, it's a fascinating thing. Like I was del I, mean, I was delighted by every frame, even the parts that didn't work. I would love to see other people turn their hand at it. And also, it's one of those things where, you you know, we're all pretty film savvy here. And, you know, so much work goes into making a movie. And, um, like, I will say this is, like, one of, you know, you have this, like, you know, smorgasbord of talent. The cast is incredible. you got Christopher Doyle as a cinematographer who's just one of the best for, for anyone's money. Um, you've got some of the best. Like, this is one of the most well, like, perfectly wardrobed and outfitted films I think I've ever seen from the 90s. Like... The, the clothing, the sets, and everything are just just brimming with um, these great artistic consistencies. And um, it's, it's just it's really fascinating that this artistic experiment is just like it's it, it's funny because it's like this 
attempt at being this like stealthy shot for shot remake but you can't fly under the radar when your plane is so full of talent you know what i mean when you've got james remar christopher doyle um you know uh beatrix passer uh, freaking julianne moore Viggo martinson falling out of the plane like you can't you know cruise cruise beneath the radar is such a it's such a weird strange um thing and the the cast is just insane i mean even down to like james remar as the cop or james Legro sure. as yeah, car dealer. William H. Macy is perfect as Arbogast. Well, oh, he's great yeah. as Arbogast. I think he makes a better Arbogast than uh, the actor in the original, frankly. I'd, but yeah. I'd watch the adventures of this Arbogast. And uh, something, something else about this, even though it's set in 1998, the movie has all these little out-of-time touches. Like, for instance, everyone wears old-fashioned clothes. Not necessarily clothes from the late 60s, but just old-fashioned enough that they don't quite fit in the decade the movie's set in but don't quite fit in the past and likewise a lot of the shots are composited in a very old-fashioned way the dialogue is delivered in a bit of an old-fashioned way Mm -hmm. um to the point where this this film felt very lynchian it felt like it took place in the same out of time Um, era that all david lynch films take place oh totally that's a good call. And I mean, when I think of this movie, I think of uh, they had a lot of behind the scenes stuff on this on MTV and so forth at the time. And I, I recall uh, a few things about that. One is which Gus Van, the DVD of Psycho was pretty new at the time. And Gus Van Sant had his assistant um, get freeze frames every time the shot changed for shot composition purposes. And that's what they used as storyboards as reference while they're filming. Oh, very interesting. Is they had, you know, stills of of the DVD printed out. And the second thing is you um, originally when I believe this was in the recent uh, documentary about the the shower scene, they they talked to the editor. um, If not, it was in a documentary. They talking to the editor of this, Amy E. Duddleston. And and what happened with, with that is they originally tried to cut it exactly the same as Hitchcock did, but it felt wrong. So. They, Van, he had to cut it like a Gus Van Sant film a bit and kind of change it a bit. And you, you do have some, you know, it's not literal shot for shot. You get these surreal images of like a hawk and an eyeball and some of these things cut in there. Yeah, and the uh, murder sequences, you get like, there's like one like quick flash of like a bondage chick when she, uh, when when uh, Arbogast gets um, lit up on the on the staircase and there's like clouds and there's like very like, avant-garde uh, flourishes. Like you said, it's it's almost, it's cut like a Gus Van Zandt film. So you get these weird artsy avant-garde moments in the, in some of the murder scenes, which is, it's an interesting twist. Um, it's an interesting way to play with the material just, just a little bit and, um and the funny thing too is, like you said, the outfit and the clothing. I think um, the '90s and also in the West Coast sensibilities, it was very much a period of like kind of throwback. So you probably would find a lot of people out there wearing kind of like vintage '60s, '70s like clothing. Yeah, I think I think all of all of those those inserted cuts of like the clouds and the TV images. There's a shot of a cow in, yeah. in, in <laughs> like on a on an old fashioned analog TV for some reason. Like I. In principle, I have nothing against those inserted, but I all felt that they were all like a handful of frames too long. I think those cuts needed to be mm. quicker. It was like they were trying to be like a Nine Inch Nails video or something. Mm-hmm. Oh, but you talked about about this being hyped on MTV, and I think that's that's the reason why I think this didn't do well in the box office because nobody really knew what to make of this film. So as I recall, the way they were it was sold 
was I it was sold alternatively as a hip new psycho with a hip new <laughs> director and a hip new cast. Yeah, this ain't your daddy's psycho. Or oh, yeah. it's just a conventional slasher film. And it's neither of those things. I feel like if the marketing had just been a bit more honest about what this was, you know, like, you know, you know, 50, 40 years ago, a legendary director changed the face of horror, take that ride again, or whatever the hell. Yeah. This might have worked. I think I think both the critics would have been gentler on it uh, and given it more of a fair shake, and I think audiences probably would have checked it out. And the funny thing, too, is that, you know, if you do a shot-by-shot remake of Psycho, you're also going to get the same pace of Psycho. And this is after, you know, Scream, and, like, I know you did last yeah, summer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So during, like, the slasher revival. So if you're going to try and sell this film, like, you know, a modern, hip, new horror film, you know, your average MTV teens are going to be, like, you know, snoozing because they're, like, they're, there's, you know, a lot of dead space in between the, the horror scenes, you know? They're not going to really appreciate and be like, ooh, here's the shower scene. Wow, I can't wait, you know? When, like, when they oh. did the audience polls in the opening weekend when this came out, it got an average of a C minus as a rating. Uh-huh. And I don't know if they talked to younger people maybe that were expecting mm-hmm. something more contemporary, as you said, like a scream or uh, I can't think of what else was, you know, I know who killed you last summer or whatever, right, you know, those yeah. kind of things. Um, it It is quite strange looking at this that uh, Vince Vaughn, plays the Anthony Perkins part of Norman Bates. But at this time in his career, he was doing really more dramas. He had a, you know, a supporting part in the second Jurassic Park film, The Lost World Jurassic Park. Um, he had a, a small part in uh, in Rudy, uh, uh, Clay Pigeons. You know, he was doing, doing these kind of indie film things. He was in The Cell. It, it wasn't until later he was in things like... Uh, old school where he kind of became uh-huh. more known as a comic actor. Well, yeah, it, it was like, it's, it's like wedding crashers is kind of what solidified him as a comic actor. Yeah. And this yeah, is certainly pre wedding crashers. I overall, I really liked uh, Vince Vaughn's performance. You know, I didn't, I didn't, what his career is now, you know, I, I don't feel like it, it retroactively poisons his performance in this film. And, and I think the difference is in, in the, in the original Norman is, you know, he's he's just a, a a very awkward young man, but he seems to come by his awkwardness uh, honestly. But the way Vince Vaughn plays it, he's awkward in that way that makes it seem like he's hiding something, and not that he necessarily is, but that he's just a person with a guilty conscience that makes it seem like he's hiding something. And I, th- I yeah, think and that speaks to the character's psychological state. Yeah, and I I think the interesting thing with Vince Vaughn too is that um, it's a good it's an interesting contrast to Anthony Perkins because uh, Vince Vaughn is like a huge dude and like through it you're kind of like it's like when um, Arvagast is grilling him it's like you could tell Vince Vaughn like this Norman Bates could just like reach over the counter and just beat the shit out of this guy oh, you know what I mean like oh he's a real physical threat I mean he's he's oh, a dude yeah. that probably could lay into you and I think that does help. Yeah, he's, he's, he's very tall. Like yeah, yeah, I mean, he's very tall. He does a lot more with the business of eating the candy, which is more subtle than the original, and he has this kind of nervous laugh to himself. He does make the part his own. And yet, and maybe it's just because this is in color or something, but seeing him in a dress with the wig, and it's notable the wig <laughs> is is a blonde, right? It's not yeah. gray. Yeah, it's one of several subtle changes. Yeah, it it doesn't quite work but i never thought that was a scary image anyway of uh bates as mother 
Well, I, you know, actually, the funny thing is, I thought I thought that did work, if only because un- unlike unlike Perkins, that initial shot you see of of Vince's Norman in the the dress and and wig, uh, just the the way the like the way it's framed, y- it does take a minute before you realize that's not him. I think it's something about the roundness of his face gives it a bit more of a feminine cast that at the at the right angle it does sort of trick your brain and you don't know who you're looking at. Yeah, there's some interesting, there's a lot of interesting, like, um, I think, flips and I think gender and sexuality and stuff, too, because with um, Jennifer Lee in the first film, the her taking of the money feels really kind of arbitrary, whereas in this, you kind of see Anne Heche is actually, like, getting her passport, and, like, you can tell she's actually, like, pumped to take this money, and she's actually going to do something mm. with it. So, whereas, well, like, they also, they also the, the, you know, the Texas billionaire guy... Uh, they also lean a bit more into his creepiness, like oh, yeah. it. Like the dialogue in the first film is a little, almost a little bit flirty, but here, I mean, he is clearly sexually harassing her. Oh yeah, he's a creepy dude. And um, in the first film, it also just kind of felt like this old school pugilism of like she stole, so we're going to murder her now. And in this movie, it just seems a little more random, a little more sadistic. Um, when Marion Crane gets uh, when Marion Crane gets killed, and. Um, and just all this other stuff too, like Julianne Moore's, like it feels like Anne Heche was saying on the commentary, she's like, Julianne Moore's playing this character, um, uh, Lila Crane, as if she's gay. Like, this is a gay woman. Like, she's very, like, you know, even down to, like, I guess, like the keychain hanging off of her, um, of her, of her belt loop. And, um, and Anne Heche was just like, as a gay woman, I just knew that that's how Julianne was playing it. And just giving the character much more agency. And the one that's like you know much more um, much more uh, forthcoming about finding out what happened to her sister, and whereas in the first film it's the it's the boyfriend who wants to find out much more, and he's like the leading case. And with like Viggo Mortensen playing um, Sam Loomis, he's kind of just like whatever, you know, he's just kind of like along for the ride. And you kind of get the feeling that he wants to you know that he wants to sleep with Julia Moore as well. You know, he's like, oh, my girlfriend's gone, but, like, I don't know, our sister's kind of hot, you know? Like, well, like he, he, he clearly he, wants to, but he also clearly has no chance in hell. And even when oh, they're yeah. even when they're pretending to be a married couple she, yep. to get into the hotel, she is so clearly over it. Oh, yeah, she has wants nothing to do with him. He tries to put her, his arm around her, and she nudges it off. And then even when they're, when they're at the sheriff's house, he tries to do it again, and she, again, like, knocks him off. It's a... She puts a lot of energy into this character, and um, and it's funny because once you get to like the third act, you're like, oh, these two are have like the best. These 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 are the ones we should have been watching the whole time. You know what I mean? Like these are the most interesting actors I think right now. And I, I I do have to say, uh, so uh, Chad Everett plays Tom Cassidy, the rich guy who had who hands over the four hundred thousand dollars. I absolutely, this is another thing where it's like he stepped out of a David Lynch movie, but Chad, Chad Everett's one of those great craggy actors who has some history in both A and B pictures. He's so perfect for this role. Oh, yeah, and um, Rance Howard is uh, the boss. I, I believe it's Ron Howard's dad. That's right, yeah. Yeah. He is. Uh, also, it's it's worth mentioning of all the people in here, uh, towards the end, the, the infamous scene from the original Psycho where the psychiatrist talks about Norman Bates is, is shortened, but it's still pretty long for my money. Uh, Robert Forrester plays that part, and this is right before he was, uh, or right around the same time, I guess, as Jackie Brown, when he had, yeah, that, yeah. had a career comeback. And you mentioned Lynchian. Uh, Robert Forrester would later play the part, a uh, pretty major part, really, of uh, 
the sheriff in Twin Peaks: The Return on Showtime, that third season. And actually, the, the whole the whole deal where the psychiatrist comes in to explain the, the 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 Bates case, this is one of the changes that I don't think was all that successful because we we talked about in the first film when he explains Norman's psychological state. You know, he he makes it clear that you know Norman is not a cross dresser, is not transgender. It's not like a it's not a sexual or gender thing. It's just an expression of this split personality. Strangely enough, that's the big part of his dialogue that's removed, and I feel yeah. like that does need to be there. Mm. Or else you're getting an incomplete picture of Norman's psychological breakdown. Oh, right. and another I mean, thing, because like, oh, we're going to have to talk about a lot of differences, but one thing that that I, that shocked me at first, but then I, I, I liked, uh, you know, even though like the Psycho House is like still out there for filming, it's a different psycho house and a different motel, but they're still framed the exact same way. Mm-hmm. They have the same yard between them with the same step, like jagged steps, which is great symbolically. But I actually, I actually really like that. It helps the film stand on its own. It doesn't distract you with an icon from another film. The other thing I liked about the hotel is it's the same floor plan as the original Bates motel, but it's a little bit more modern in the sense that it looks like a hotel that would have been built in the late sixties when the original movie took place mm-hmm. that someone's just been keeping up. Yeah. And you have those like harsh fluorescent lights and um, Chris Doyle cinematography plays with it perfectly. Cause you have these almost like very oppressive um, scenes where it's just like, eh, you know, it's like, it's like you can feel the fluorescent lights through uh, Doyle's uh, photography. It's also Notable in in the shower scene when Anne Hatch falls over, you can see her ass as was meant to happen in the original, but they couldn't for, uh, you know, ratings reasons or or whatever at at the time. They they definitely had some more blood too. Uh, Sure, and and you mentioned also with um, the the speech thrasher at the end. Psycho came up in the news recently with um, everything going on tcm is doing a limited turner classic movies i should say is doing a limited series uh starting on actually already started i guess called reframed classic films in the rear view mirror where it's kind of more in-depth roundtable looks at um with notable individuals uh, about films that are considered you know problematic now and kind of giving more context which i think is a great way to to do it because you can have the uh thing coming up before the film that says you know this might contain uh stuff that isn't you know kosher these days but you know you need to watch it in the context which was made and i think having a sort of limited documentary series about this is a good way to kind of explain it to younger people but they bring up psycho because they wanted to cover it from the uh trans point of view which to me seems odd because it's not a transgender thing it's a cross-dressing Thing, sort of it's more of like a psychosexual thing really um but to, it'll be interesting to see how they discuss psycho uh through through that lens and so forth so we'll just have to i mean do you have any thoughts on that because it's been so much in the news lately about like oh why is hbo still have woody allen films if they're doing the allen versus pharaoh documentary right well I... because because they own the distribution rights to those films <laughs> and those and and those distribution rights can still be profitable is is the the short answer. Yeah, and but, and HBO yeah. said you know we their response is like we let the film speak to themselves, which I think is the perfect answer. Like you can choose right. whether to watch yeah. it or not. Right, I, know, and like, I think I, it also. Uh, Thrasher. 
Well, I, I mean, I, I, I tend to be pretty like warts and all with these things, you know, like, like it's, it's like, you know, if, if, like, would, would you, would you take a chisel and chip the penis off of Michelangelo's David because you're offended by nudity? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I think it's important because it's, a uh, it's an argument against something like cancel culture where, I mean, you know, like I've, I'm watching, I don't want to get too off, off subject, but like I was, we were watching um, Balan v. Pharaoh thing, and in recently, like I had recently rewatched like, you know, Stardust Memories and Zelig mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And, you know, yeah. you pick up on all themes like beyond something like Manhattan or beyond something like these other, our husbands and wives were, you know, it's, it's very much obvious. about Woody Allen playing yeah. a character who was, yeah. But, and then you have something like Stardust Memories and there's all these really weird scenes of dialogue about like, one of the main, like, Charlotte Rampling's character has this weird hang-up because she thinks that uh, Woody Allen's character was, like, flirting with his, like, her baby sister, you know what I mean? Mm. And then he says stuff like, like, oh, all of young women fantasize about, like, a father figure, you know, like, hitting on them. So it's, I, like I said, it's important to have these around so you can make these connections and draw your own conclusions. And also maybe, you know, different things will come to light in lieu of, re you know, different news. But um, the thing, like you said, with the psycho thing um, coming up is that, you know, maybe there isn't anything, say, um, directly uh, inherently problematic. But I think it's important that since it's featured in an older film, let's have a conversation about it. You know, whether or not it's good or bad, it's it's let's talk about it so we can, you know, unpack something if we need to. Well, I guess my my, st my stance and this this is something I keep I keep meaning to write into the. Uh, the uh, critically acclaimed network. They have a whole other podcast for their for their letter show about this because this came up uh, when they had gotten a letter about Jaws and and like so like the the pro the problem. I don't think the problem is the film itself having having problematic or objectionable content. The problem is people being unable to tell the difference between fantasy and reality, and that's not on the film. Um, that that is on sure. the audience. It's like it's like with Jaws. Jaws is a great movie that happens to have a killer shark in it. Some people couldn't tell the difference between fantasy and reality, and it led to a lot of anti-shark paranoia and shark hunting. That's not the movie's fault. That's right. goddamn idiots in the audience who <laughs> yeah, can't yeah, yeah. who can't who who some who can't leave stuff in the theater. And I feel like with Psycho and th things like that, you know, it's. It's it's the same way, and I think one of the things the saving grace with with the whole like post movie breakdown of of Norman's psychological state is that it's it's all done very clinically and professionally. It's not like the ending of Ace Ventura: Pet Detective, uh, which despite yeah. despite Einhorn not being trans, it's a disguise is transphobic as hell because it's just every character in the movie being vomitously disgusted by the right. idea of a person in a dress having a penis and and that's the that's that's the real difference in psycho it is a sober clinical assessment hi we're ellen steven and mark hosts of nice games club the show where nice game devs talk gaming and game development topics include programming design tools and more we also do interviews and one of our game jams listen to nice games club wherever you get to your wherever you get to your podcast you get there <laughs> Or at nicegames.club. Retrograde Amnesia is a comprehensive podcast about classic Japanese RPGs. Each season, we cover a single game, chapter by chapter, beat by beat. Season one covers Xenogears. Season two, 
covers Chrono Cross. Each episode, we play a section of the game and unpack the story, mechanics, music, and themes. Also, our post-production AI companion, the FakeNet, fills us in on the finer details we may have missed. Initializing FakeNet. Yes. They need me for everything. Find Retrograde Amnesia at greenlitpodcasts.com. And it's not saying that because this person, you know, has, you know, because this person, you know, cross-dresses, he's a killer. You know what I mean? It's not saying like, oh, he puts on a wig and then he starts killing because that's what all, you know, transvestites do. You know what I mean? It's, it's like you said, it's very clinical and then there's, you know, more to the story than this one element of the character. You know what it's like? It's like Eddie oh. Izzard, Eddie Izzard's bit about the executive transvestite versus the weirdest, <laughs> the, the weirdo transvestite. He's, I'm an executive transvestite. I wear, I wear a dress and I look mainly good doing it. And then you find out there's a man who cross-dresses who also has a vault full of stolen shoes. Yeah, because he's a fucking weirdo transvestite. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and and with the, I mean, psychology at the time Psycho came out, that psychology being mainstream or the idea of people going to a therapist being mainstream was was sort of unusual. And well, well, it was oddly enough, it was fashionable because it was something that mostly only rich people did until that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. And I mean, like, I mean, you brought up Woody Allen. I mean, speaking of Woody Allen, I mean, you know, he has stuff with therapists. I mean, that sort of helped normalize it to some degree in in some of his films. He would. Talk about a therapist, or oh, gee, I just saw my therapist the other day, and oh, he told me I should eat. Yet, yes, I should eat less uh, pork sunyi. Oh, yeah, you've been doing that it's joke just, for like ten plus years. I, <laughs> I have, and it never it gets less funny each time. But <laughs> well, it'll uh, come back uh, around. It'll come back. I, around. I think so, but it's oh. uh, it's just one of those. But I mean, back back to Psycho, the '98 remake, which we're supposed to be talking about. Oh, um, yeah. Vigo is quite young in in this movie, and yeah, I recall you saying, Alex, you really liked his performance in this. Yeah, I, I, I think I just like seeing Viggo Mortensen. And in another turn of things, and also in the, I guess, trend of Viggo Mortensen showing his penis in films, um, he volunteered <laughs> to be naked and while well, Anne Hayes remained clothed because it was just kind of another flip on the on the genre conventions. You know what I mean? It's like, why are all the women naked? How about putting a naked dude in here? Um so yeah, in a couple of those scenes, he is nude, which is yeah. funny. Um, he, he, hang, and... he hangs his penis out the window of their hotel. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I joked about it. I was like, I wonder if that was his idea, and it turns out, yep, it was. Um, so, so there were. I mean, we talked about like a lot of the little differences worked for me. I need. I really need to address one that did not work for me. So in the build up to the shower scene where uh, where Marion Crane is is getting is getting ready to get into the shower or, or like undressing and uh, Norman Bates is watching uh, through the peephole. It, it, it's you could it, you could infer from the first film that Norman may be uh, attempting to masturbate when he's acting as a voyeur. Well, in this movie, there's no subtext. Norman flat out masturbates when he's smiling when he's spying on Marion Crane. And because of just Vince Vaughn's expression, Vince Vaughn's face, but also the old-timey way the shot is framed, that scene is so unintentionally comical. <laughs> it's um, It was one of those things where I was like, out of all the things they changed initially, I was like, that's just kind of gratuitous and unnecessary. Um, and, you know, I'm not like an expert on this film just because I watched it with a damn commentary. I'm sure plenty of other people have. But uh, Vince Vaughn did explain it. He goes, you know, if... <laughs> I'm a compulsory, you know, murderer. 
um, you know, I'm going to, you know, give into my compulsion and then the guilt of having violated myself and with all the mother baggage is what's going to, you know, what's going to motivate me to, to kill. And also it's like, um, you know, you can tell this motel isn't doing any business. And for someone who's, you know, with these uh, psychological, you know, hangups, uh, having like a woman, not just a lone woman, but a woman he's clearly attracted to coming in alone. This is like, think this is like Christmas morning for, for Norman Bates. You know what I mean? Like knowing he's attracted to her, she's alone, she's on the run. So like, he's just like, I'm going to go all in, you know? And it, it didn't make me like, you know, it didn't change my mind. But it gave some context to the scene and how it came to be. It wasn't just like, hey, make a masturbate. That would be neat, huh? Um, that a little bit of thought, more thought went into it than I initially uh, thought, uh, anticipated. It, it's just distracting. And I think that's less the fault of the filmmaking here and more of just how uh, hallowed ground the original Psycho is. Right, right. And and that being, but I mean, the, the people going crazy over this remake at the time, you cannot understate that. Despite the fact that Psycho has had, uh, what, three sequels, a failed TV pilot at the time that we've all talked yeah. about over the past few months, right? It's not like if never been any sequels or any spinoffs of, of Psycho before, then this came out. I think right. the, re the reception would have been better. Yeah, I, I do think that's also funny, too. Like, it's like, you know, people are like, how dare you, you know, tread the hallowed ground of Hitchcock and it's like well you know you're kind of forgetting about those like you know four other movies and yeah like or I guess technically three like you said in a pilot um and again it's that funny thing of like of like you know it's it's Gus Van Zandt like against Hitchcock or something so like if that's the case so if this movie was more financially if say this movie was more financially successful um would that mean like he won you know what I mean? Like, do you, like that's just a it's a silly way to look at it, you know. And it's that mentality that um, became so pervasive that 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 took over so much at the end of the director's era of like, you know, a movie successful solely based on its box office returns. Oh, something we ha we haven't touched on, and and this this speaks to I think Gus Van Zandt really really adoring the work of Hitchcock. There are multi-layered birds references in this movie. The the and, oh, yeah. and the big one being whenever there's a prominently featured window, there's a bird behind it. We see bir birds fly past the hotel where Marion Crane's meeting her lover at the beginning. When Marion Crane's at home preparing to skip town with the money, there's mm -hmm. this. The shots always frame so you see these birds outside. The climax of the film, when they find Norman's body in in the basement. In the basement, amongst the taxidermy supplies, is this big um, is this big aviary full of birds that get shattered and birds go flying everywhere. Which I thought was actually a pretty cool touch, having like, oh, like you it. can see Norman like putting her in the chair and be like, "Oh, watch the birds, mother!" You know, like it's it was a good touch. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I, I, like it, it went beyond just let's subtly reference uh, Hitchcock's other biggest film. Like it's. It's just, it's just, it, it, it's just, it, yeah, it adds, it adds so much texture and, and life. And it, and, you know, just, it just makes me wonder, okay, does the next day, does a remake of the birds happen in this world? I know, right? <laughs> yeah, I think, um, and it, it also, maybe I just like Silence of the Lambs a lot, but it did kind of remind me of the uh, ending of Silence of the Lambs with like all the, you know, you have all like the moths flying around with, uh, with this, you know, you have like the, the the weird sound of like birds fluttering around. Just it makes it a little more eerie. 
Oh, something. So, so I love in the fir- in the original where you know the the car sinks into the swamp and just you know slowly sinks into that muck. And something none of the sequels have been able to do is make a swamp look as sinister and dirty uh, and consuming as the swamp in the original film. It's it, it really does look like they're just dropping the car into the old fishing hole in all the sequels, and it never really <laughs> works for me. This movie comes closest to capturing that that rot and that consuming yeah. organic grossness of the original one. I mean, it's dirty water. There's things floating in it. it. Takes a while for the car to sink and it slowly vanish under the colored water. When the car is pulled out, it's it's just filthy. I love the bog in this film. It really does feel like yeah, a place the evil things slink into to disappear. A place is where a corpse fester, you know, like, ugh, yeah. yeah. It's definitely good and gross. Oh, and you know what else happened around the same time in 1998? Shecky Spielboig did a remake of one of his own films, which was in itself inspired by Psycho. Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, hey, uh, Shecky, thank you for calling in. Oh, he's happy to call in. I had the rotary phone in the repair shop, so I got one of them cellular devices from uh, from the uh, you know strip mall there. And uh, yeah, no antenna, but I trust it. I get a very good signal with this thing. Yeah, so, so what can you tell us uh, about your remake of your movie that wasn't in itself a plagiarism of Psycho? Oh, yeah, it was called, um, it was called Psycho. Um, the, uh, I, I, I couldn't find, there wasn't a Y on my typewriter, so it was just Psycho. And it was, um, it was about this guy named General Pasco, and he was going to, uh, he was going to conquer the, uh, this, uh, bait shop, but, uh, you know, he couldn't get his tank out of Hawk because the he owed money to another. Exactly. He owed a bunch of money to his bookkeeper. So he, uh, ended up getting his legs broke and he couldn't drive the tank because it was in Hawk and he couldn't do nothing. So he basically kind of just crawls around his apartment on his, uh, with his arms and his little, uh, you know, uh, helmet. And um, then he gets a, a fishing rod and uh, tries to Tarzan his way out of his house. And then he uh, falls and hits a telephone pole and dies. Stirring, stirring stuff, Shecky. Oh, yeah, yeah. We were going for a more uh, neo-verite, Brechtian, uh, revisionist uh, uh, treatise on uh, psychotherapy. But then I forgot that, uh, you know, you got to keep your bookkeeper happy, too. Yeah, no, no Dogma 95 for Shecky Spielberg. Oh yeah, no. And and I have no. to say, when you when you remade it, there's some uh, very thoughtful touches. The scene with the microwave, especially, was was uh, quite moving. Oh, I'm always moving around the microwave. So yeah, I, I always call him Chef Mike. Hey, Chef Mike, beep a beep for me. Very good. Okay, and and can people watch this film, or is it is missing? Oh, it's one of my great lost masterpieces. Uh, it's right up there with the uh, missing reel from the from the magnificent Ambersons. But I'm gonna give uh, Gus Van Sant a call. Maybe you can do a uh, shot by shot remake of my original script, which is yeah, actually a cocktail napkin. Right, right. I mean, he he's been doing a lot more, going back to his indie roots uh, for the most part for the past uh, decade plus. So I, I'm sure old Gussie would be uh, interested in uh, gussing that up, so to speak. So, oh, yeah. um, oh, oh, th- thanks so much. Thanks so much, Shecky. Always a pleasure. Uh, no problem. No problem. All right. Okay. I gotta uh, return this phone. Yep. Um, Shecky Spielberg, always a pleasure on the uh, Zequel cast. Uh, 
So, I mean, yeah, as we wrap up this discussion on the Psycho remake, which has gone to some interesting places, um, I found a great quote from Roger Ebert's review of this. Um, he said, I was reminded of the child prodigy who was summoned to perform for a famous pianist. The child climbed to the piano stool and played something by Chopin with great speed and accuracy. The great musician then patted the child on the head and said, you can play the notes. Someday you may be able to play the music. Ooh. It, it's, it's, that's pretty mean. Um, I, I don't think the movie is as bad as all that. Ebert gave it one and a half out of four stars for the record. Um, and it's just such a weird, it's the kind of movie that like, you can tell the reviews it's going to get before it even comes out. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You say, oh, I'm going to remake a a Hitchcock film. Not just that, but I'm going to do it shot for shot. You're just asking to get kicked in the balls. Well, in Um, your head, you can already hear all the objections. Right. Oh, yeah. Less of a psycho, yeah. Um, You'd be psycho (laughs) to watch this movie, yeah, or all the the puns come to mind. But, yeah, this this Psycho uh, 98, I would say um, sequel, no. It's not awful. It's an interesting, like if I was teaching a film history class, I think I'd probably screen this after the original on alternating mm-hmm. days in the in the lab um, or screening room, so to speak. Uh, I, I think from an intellectual standpoint, for something for students to study. But but as a movie, it, it doesn't quite work. I think it, it should have, if you're going to go more modern, like make it a bit more different, which I guess kind of defeats the purpose of a shot-for-shot shot remake. <laughs> Um, you, you want to see more Gus Van Sant flourishes. You, you want to see something else in there. So I, I would say, sequel no. You know, a good attempt. Good actors. Um, you know, cinematography is nice. The the music arrangements are, are good, but it's um, it just feels like out of time and out of place. And I, I really don't think it should have been made to begin with. Uh, Thrasher. I I'm gonna do the whole uh, Siskel and Ebert are gonna disagree. I'm gonna give this a sequel. Yes, I think this was a very worthy experiment, and I would not mind seeing other uh, other directors on the rise do do similar experiments. I I I enjoyed I enjoyed watching this, and I will probably watch it again in a few years. And Alex, and. I can't believe I'm about to fucking say this. I'm going to go with a sequel, yes. I can't believe. Um, I, I We started out watching this, and we were like, oh, we're going to rip on a stupid, oh, look at that, that's dumb. Oh, that's bad green screen. Uh, and then, you know, you, like, I, like I said, you, know, you, you realize what goes into a film, and you realize what uh, anomaly this is. It's such an anomaly. Um, this would be like, I, this would be like, um, Jeremy Saunier remaking a shot by shot remake of E.T. You know, like the, the guy who brought you Green mm. Room, and Blue Ruin, you know, yeah, doing a yeah. shot remake. I mean, it's baffling and, and doesn't make any sense, but I would go see it. And I, this, that's like what I was saying is that you have like a major budget art house experimental film like this is what like Andy Rohl was doing in the factory like you know doing like a Dennis Hopper Tarzan movie you know with like two actors um but you have uh you know like this A-list talent pool pool of A-list talent going on and um and it's just funny because like 
you know, Gus Van Sant knew exactly what he was doing. You know, he knew he was walking into a freaking shredder, um, being the guy, you know, responsible for the for the fame, infamous, you know, Psycho, the dreaded Psycho remake. Um, and also just as like, I guess, a time capsule of the 90s. I, I remember I saw this. I saw this fucking thing in the theater twice. Um, once because it's, hey, Psycho, cool. I love this movie. And then second, well, it was either this or Home Fries. Yeah. Yep. Uh, So I went with it. Yeah. And it was funny because um, I had to explain it to like my friends. They were like, so wait, what's going on? Like, well, she stole the money. All right. So she's going to do this thing and something's going to happen. All right. You know, it was was just another um, example of how a lot of modern audiences weren't going to really vibe with this film because it's a it's a different film from a different time. But it just goes to show that if you remake the movie with the same uh, script, more or less, and uh, shooting style, more or less, you, you get a different movie. Yeah. Well, um, we're running a bit low on time. I think we're going to skip pitch a sequel because we've done that to death, literally, with all these sequel movies. <laughs> Mine, remake uh, of the birds. There you go. Well, gonna say, no, uh, well, let's make it that real quick. Then, yeah, what Hitchcock thing would you want to see remade? Yeah, in uh, this same way, the birds. Okay. Yeah, in the same way. Alex? I would have Gus Van Zandt do a shot-by-shot remake of Psycho 2. <laughs> but just with a different cast. Huh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, a different cast. Interesting. Nice. Um, I would say I would want to see um, John Waters do a shot-for-shot remake of Rope. Ooh. That would be great. He did do Psycho yeah. Mom. He did. Yeah. Serial true. Mom, Serial Mom. Serial Mom, yeah. <laughs> It, oh, it looks like Psycho, though, with the knife and stuff on the cover. But yeah, um, so on to what you're watching. I have been watching, as far as movies, let's think. It's been more television lately. Uh, I, I did see the first few episodes of WandaVision on Disney+. Plus. I have not finished it yet, so... Uh, I won't spoil uh, anything. Yeah, no spoilers, and I don't really know the comics that well. But I, I am liking so far how it kind of has a weird David Lynchian mystery surrealism aspect at the same time it's paying homage to different eras of sitcoms, even down to having original theme songs to each um, episode. I especially liked in season two, it had a extended animated kind of bewitch style intro, which was fun. Which which I will say I've enjoyed the series too. And I love the way that it sort of pays tribute to these old, old fashioned like television shows but one thing that, that striked me is so bizarre about that animated opening, they tried to use like some modern like animation software to recreate the look of like an old fashioned Hanna-Barbera animated animated opening. And yet somehow it looks so much worse than those animated openings. It's, yeah, it's a bit too clean, um, a bit too... Like, you know what it feels like? It feels like they farmed it out to another production company rather than using the actual Disney animation crew that they probably have on staff. That's a good point. Um, and, I mean, man, the way how that meme has spread of uh, the neighbor character, uh, is it uh-huh. Agnes? Or, or Agatha, Agatha well, of her, Ag- her, do, her doing the wink with the big mouth. That's been... I've never seen a meme catch on so fast. That's really... You can put that in anything for next to any you know, as a commentary on a, on a separate picture. Um, that, well, that's remember, just gone everywhere. Well, I remember when I saw that scene, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's going to be a meme. It's it's just right there. It could almost be intentional. But, yeah, I mean, given how uh, surreal the show is, it 
Almost has to be. Um, Alex, what have you been watching? Um, I, I rewatched a pretty solid uh, '80s flick, and that was uh, *The Stepfather* with uh, with uh, Terry O'Quinn and a bunch of other good actors. Um, it was it was interesting. There was this film critic, uh, Chuck Wilson, who um, was making his own zine for a long time, and he reached out to Pauline Kael when she was around. And they had both reached the conclusion that The Stepfather was, like, one of the best fil- American films of the 1980s, like, st- like, hands down. And that it was just this encapsulation of, like, you know, Reaganoid Americana and, like, the breakdown of the American family and just this weird, toxic, patriarchal, um, you know, depiction of, like, this... Uh, like this subversion of, like, you know, the 50s throwback shit that they were really going for in the 80s. And... It all that that all really kind of checks out in reassessing the film, and it's a fascinating film, and it works really well. And I mean, Terry O'Quinn is just like holy shit, he's terrific in this film. Um, really, get, and lends an air of legitimacy to um, you know a film that could have easily declined in self-parody, uh, given given how rampant the genre had gotten at that point. Um, and uh, really strong performances from everyone in that cast, and uh, it really holds up. It's a very terrific film. I did not and realize they did a remake in 2009. Yeah, which um, looks pretty tone deaf, but I, I haven't seen Stepfather 2 despite owning it on VHS when I was a kid, probably because I didn't see the Stepfather, so it didn't really make sense to watch the second one. But um, but yeah, what a, what a, what a fascinating movie. I, I was really glad to, re- to have rewatched it. Have you ever seen it, Thrasher? I I have, but it was a long time ago. I mean, it's a very intense main performance. Um, you know, maybe something we'll have to we'll have to do since it's got sequels. Ooh. Yeah, um, they were floating around on on Pluto and Amazon Prime and stuff. I need to take another look at those. But yeah, that's a good point. Kind of a shorter series too, which is always nice. Yeah. Um, uh, Thrasher, what have you been watching? Uh, so I uh, dipped into uh, an oldie but a goodie. Uh, a, a, I found an underappreciated film by George Mad Max Miller, uh, The Witches of Eastwick. Oh, cool. Oh, okay. Based on the novel by John Updike. And um, how did it hold up? Overall, really, really well. I love that the movie doesn't hold your hand. It just keeps on going. It never bothers stopping to explain anything. And that only helps. And just Jack, Jack Nicholson... Jack Nicholson is is pretty much doing the exact same performance he gave as the Joker, but uh, as this sinister, this sinister uh, figure, uh, uh, was it like Devlin, uh, Daryl Van Horn? Uh, but it works really well, and there's just these like guttural animal noises he makes when he gets frustrated that is sometimes mixed in with the sounds of actual animals, and just like the supernatural stuff is great the effects the effects are those bizarre effects you really only get with a british or australian director nice i see yeah and, and it's, it's, and it's probably George... it's also probably the only good performance share has ever given there i said it huh. not even moonstruck you know, like yeah uh, i have not seen moonstruck and i haven't seen mermaids in ages Oh, those but, are the two key ones, yeah. But but like, well, at least like with mermaids, I think my problem with that is, you know, I really hope there's a scene to explain why this why this single mother uh, has been able to afford several billion dollars in in plastic surgery. Oh no, this is like way before that. I I disagree. <laughs> 
Which oh, is the okay. way before we'll, we'll check our we'll check our share timeline. <laughs> yeah. Check the time lapse of back the... and to the left. Her skin uh, goes back and to the left. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so next time we're gonna be doing a, a one off of a movie that's uh, on Amazon Prime. Um we're going to fill in the gap with a sequel we've been meaning to talk about. Uh, we just didn't do it at the time. Terminator Dark Fate. Whoa. It's the sixth Terminator film. And James Cameron was involved in the story for the first time since Terminator 2. And what the third uh, meant to start a new trilogy. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It, it also performed. Each one performs uh, successively worse. Um, so they keep coming out faster right... and faster. I feel like at some point we're going to get yeah. two competing Terminator movies in the same year. They did the they did the David Gordon Green Halloween thing. Is what they did. They got the original. You're they right. got the original yeah. star back, and then they got the original director involved, and then everyone's like, ah, legit, let's do it. And, and they had um, Edward Furlong do some uh, motion capture. Um, oh, that's some, right. For some stuff early on, but yeah, this this movie is. Ooh, it's a movie. I'll talk about it next week. It's <laughs> really, I you know, I think the rights were revert back to James Cameron, so we'll see what he does with it. But considering the pacing that they're uh, they're trying to film four Avatar sequels, I think one of which yeah. is a prequel, all simultaneously in New Zealand or Australia or something like that. So yeah. I could not be less interested in those, but I'm, yeah. we'll probably yeah. cover those way down the line when we're in our 50s or whatever when these come out. Yeah. So, <laughs> so for a sequel cast too, uh, this is Matt. Follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. And, uh, this uh, is Thrasher. Uh, follow yeah. me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. Also keep an eye out on drivethroughrpg.com for 100 oddities for a dungeon. That's uh, my latest release. Can you spell drivethroughrpg? I believe it is like uh, D-R-I-V-E-T-H-R-U-R-P-G.com. Yep, it's the U part I think people might be getting confused by. And uh, Alex? You can find me on Twitter at CrabNet1914, and you can buy my book. Buy my... I've been waiting years <laughs> to crack that joke. Um, <laughs> I am featured in Battleship Pretensions, 101 Best Films of the Decade book. Um, I think I've got five set entries in there, but um, all the writing in that book is uh, terrific, and you can find it at BattleshipPretensions.com. Check it out. Yep, and next week we'll talk about Terminator Dark Fate, the sixth film. So, as Arnold might say, I'll be back, 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 back. I have been sent to terminate you. Okay, so first sequel cast uh, two, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. And the S is Alex. Saying... Life is a Norman, write your own ending, keep on stabbing, keep dismembering, we've just done what we set out to do. Thanks to the lovers, the mothers, and Psycho 2.